Welcome to another episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm John Weinstein, the Dean of the Early Colleges for Bard College, which is how I connected with the Historical Society of the New York Courts. I'm here together with Erica Kaufman. Hi, I'm Erica Kaufman, and I'm the director of the Bard College Institute for Writing and Thinking. And through the Historical Society of the New York Courts, we've been working to develop resources and workshops for teachers to help support teaching legal history more interactively and broadly. Today is Monday, June 29th, and John and I wanted to talk today about a couple of things that we share. One of them is being administrators who spend a lot of our time working with faculty at various levels, both high school and college levels. And we're also both have a lot of experience working in collaboration with the Historical Society of New York Courts in an effort to bring legal history and the kind of archival materials the Historical Society has to a broader audience of both teachers and students. Today, what we wanna talk about is how the certain materials that we've each been working with help us, given the current condition with remote and connected learning, how these materials help us to think through some of the issues that we've been facing with both colleagues and students as far as access, inclusion, and community goes. In terms of the I mean, materials you've worked with, Erica, how, how are you seeing these reach students and you know, to what extent do students have access to this material in other ways? And in what ways is this the first time they're encountering, encountering legal history? John, that's a really interesting question because the work that the Institute for Writing and Thinking does is largely pointing towards teachers and offering professional development situations. However, when we've had these workshops in the past, I think now three or four years, we hear from faculty again and again that we're helping them figure out ways to teach things they either don't normally teach or have a really hard time getting students engaged in and invested in. And that's something that I find to be really surprising given that the work that we're doing involves things like freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Like, you know, we've been working particularly to create learning opportunities that center on court cases in New York legislation that impacts our daily life. And I'm wondering what your experience is on the same topic. Like I know that you've worked with students across a range of different campuses. I'm, I'm curious what your experience has been. Yeah, you know, I've been working most recently on a program with the Historical Society of the New York Courts called the Harlem Law Program, where we were providing a Saturday course for students from high schools in the Harlem area or who live in the Harlem area, and they haven't had access to legal history before. That's maybe not hugely surprising, right? Because it's not necessarily a standard piece, but it, it's been interesting because it has such an intersection with American history. Right? And our faculty member for the course, Johan Worthy, is a US history teacher, and it's providing that different lens. What's also interesting to me is, you know, there's also the issue of time. Right? And for young people now, a case that happened in the late 20th century is quite distant. So part of the work that our curriculum had included Roe v. Wade. For my generation, that course, that, the case is very familiar. Right? But for the students, they may not necessarily have heard of that at all. They may be familiar with abortion rights, but not with 
foundational cases that cause that to be. So I think there's both a time and place aspect that goes into access to this kind of material. That's really interesting and that makes a whole lot of sense. On my end, we've been working with texts ranging from the US Constitution and the New York State Constitution to the Federalist Papers to more contemporary specific cases involving freedom of expression. And even when it comes down to something like the Bill of Rights that most people have at least encountered in some form in their education, I think pretty across the board, there was this element of surprise when we were working with faculty about, you know, not fully realizing what these documents actually say. And that led me to really think about the importance of close reading, particularly when it comes to some of these more foundational documents in American history or in legal history. I think there's also just the access to history issue. Um, prior to my position as Dean of the Early Colleges, providing academic leadership for all of Bard's public early college campuses, I was the principal of Bard High School Early College Newark. And a number of my students who came in as ninth graders hadn't really had much in terms of history class for a number of years, because what often happens is with the pressure to have good English scores for standardized testing so that the you know, school does well, schools end up doing double English and double math, and so you lose history and you lose science. So often, just the context for history was really something that we had to start from very initial place on. So, and, and, and I think that this idea of denying students the opportunity to study history and to study legal history, it be, becomes a further way of separating people out who, who, from access to, to understanding of legal knowledge. That also reminds me of how even at a place like Bard College, there's a lot of conversation around exactly what you're saying, how students maybe enter into college and they don't have a working knowledge of American history or of things like how voting works or how elections work or how somebody actually becomes the president. And given that we're entering into an election year, it seems like these are topics that it becomes even more important to make sure students are exposed to. And a lot of the work that we've been doing with teachers has been really to debunk these documents and figure out ways to open them up to students so that they don't feel like they're studying something that's dry and old and detached from the current moment, but so that they're able to actually see the reality of these documents, which is that they continue to play a role in our everyday life. And I think that given the moment that we're in right now, this becomes even more true. And so I'm thinking particularly about the pandemic and how that's affected instruction, but also about the activism that's been going on across the country in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and how freedom of speech and freedom of expression are even more important than ever now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the results of denying Black people their rights, and also, which includes denying them access to even the legal, the legal knowledge that shows they have rights, it's not unintentional, right, that that kind of knowledge has been kept from people. And I do think that that's another just key purpose. We're only going to read so many court cases in one of these courses over the course of the, of the semester, right? But to know that those cases are there and that there are these foundational reasons and to see that in a historical context. We've done a lot in our course with looking at just the founding of New York State, right? It didn't always exist. A lot of things that seem like they've always been the case, they were invented by someone, right? And created. To understand the roots of that creation can also help with 
finding your way into it and understanding the roots of changing that as well. That I think is also a, a key piece. And when you're working with teachers, to what extent have they experienced this kind of legal information? I've been talking a lot about how my students have experienced in and out, but what do you find um, for teachers in this, in this way? Well, it varies vastly um, depending on who I'm working with. I think that most teachers know the material but have not had success teaching it or haven't had the opportunity to teach it because there are such specific constraints placed on what teachers need to cover depending on what state or what kind of history they teach. And so I know that increasingly a lot of the faculty that I work with are very worried about global history and not so worried about American history. But now that we're in an election year, we're seeing an increase of faculty who maybe can't devote a whole unit to teaching American case law, but they are interested in figuring out ways to weave it in throughout their curriculum so that students are getting a sense of how decisions get made in our country and why it's important to vote or to at least be informed. You know, another question that I hear a lot from, from teachers is, you know, the idea of civic responsibility and civic engagement, which is something that comes up in global history as well as in American history, but really figuring out ways to use primary documents in order to engage students in some kind of action. And, and I think I hear you saying this in, in a lot of what you're saying, which points to the idea that when students have the opportunity to encounter these materials and really engage with them, that's a form of empowerment. Definitely. And I think that we're really trying to work on that in the Harlem Law Program. I think as our program manager, Lagaya Franklin, goes to talk with students and schools that might be interested, I do think that there is a lot of interest and students really want to know about the law. Often it's because they're interested in becoming a lawyer or they think they might be. I think it's great for them to get to see what case law looks like while they're doing that, what that actually means. And then also how this is actually empowering whether you want to be a lawyer or not. And to know your legal rights in specific and also that they're the sources from which those come, I think is really empowering. I like how in some ways students are attracted to this because they might be interested in a career in the law. And that's great if that's the direction they go in. But they also come to see, as, you, as you've talked about with engaged citizenship, how it's really key to know these things as a citizen as well. And I, and I think in terms of the kind of erasure, right, that comes from denying these subjects to students, both the erasure of the opportunity to be a lawyer, if that's what they wish to do, but also the erasure of the opportunity to really be a citizen in all the fullest senses and to have access to knowing all the things that that means. I think that's something that's really important to combat, um, particularly in these times, but in any time, this has been true for hundreds of years and we need to keep pushing forward in keeping this material out there and access to it for all different communities. John, I'm wondering if you saw any changes in how students were engaging in these kinds of materials once learning went remote. Like, I'm just wondering, it sounds as though it's a very vibrant initiative that you're doing in Harlem, and I just wonder what happened when we went remote, and if there was the same level of engagement, or if it was harder. It's an interesting question, Erica, because we actually started, even before everyone went remote, the Harlem Law Program had started to do some hybrid sessions because for some students, traveling to the space was just difficult. 
it took up more time. They were having to, you know, on the weekends, help take care of younger siblings or do other family responsibilities. And they might be able to make the time for the class session, but when you added in the transit, it was just too much. So we were already looking at remote as a means of increasing access. So prior to the pandemic, you know, it had that effect in a positive way. I think as the pandemic developed, that became harder because the students just had more to manage at home. You know, they were taking everything remotely. They were at home all day. The managing and assisting with the family increased. So that actually did become harder. But I do think that still the initial experience helped me see how the remote tools, if we could figure out how to make them equitably accessible, could actually help with access. I know we've also been interested in reaching students you know, beyond our immediate location in New York City. And that was something that the society was also interested in, particularly in outreach to students in rural areas. We do see that as an area of potential. I, I do wonder if it may be harder to do right now during the pandemic fully, but if, but if the, some of the skills we develop in that will help us in the future in terms of increasing access. I mean, how has that you know, affected the specifics of what you're doing in this work? I mean, that's a tough question. I, I don't really know that I have the answer to that because we, you know, we've created these workshops for teachers and, um, you know, we will be offering a version of the workshop that we created in partnership with the Historical Society in a couple of weeks. And um, that's a workshop called Thinking Historically Through Writing, Justice and the Law. And in past years, that workshop, you know, it's a week-long workshop in July, and it's hard for teachers to find the time to be able to commit to it. But this summer, we expanded the focus of the workshop to be a bit more global, and the workshop filled immediately. It filled really, really quickly. So I think that that says something about where people's minds are. But I also can't help but wonder if there's a way in which being engaged in this kind of deep conversation with foundational texts and cases has informed some of the ways that I've been talking to colleagues about the challenges of online instruction. Like one example is I was in a meeting earlier today and colleagues were, were having a discussion about what to do about students who don't have their camera on in a Zoom class. And, you know, that's something where I think that it's a student's fundamental right to be able to have their camera off, right? And that, you know, like my thinking behind that, I think, comes largely out of just beginning to understand what individual rights really mean through this work that I've been doing, both with the materials and with other teachers. I imagine that that is going to be different if you're thinking at a high school level where one might need the student to at least turn on their camera momentarily so you can make sure that they're there and that they're okay. But on a post-secondary level, you know, this is a big conversation because it's really a conversation about equity and the tension between wanting to make sure that you know that a student is there and engaged and wanting to enable the student to choose how much of their personal world they actually want to divulge. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's interesting that this, this whole new array of issues is coming up. And in some sense, it's, I think it's we're seeing them more, in a sense. And, you know, when, when you're teaching in an in-person space, and I think this is true in more of a high school space or more, as a more of a college space, or also, the, you know, the early college spaces that, that, that I've done most of my work in, we envision that getting, that getting to the classroom makes it into the equalizer. 
And so whatever is going on in a student's life, when we're in the school building, we're somehow all the same, right? And I think that that's a really false viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And this having more of a lens into students' homes and their lives and their varying responsibilities and the differences among those depending on who the student is, whether we've actually seen it or not seen it, because it may be that the camera being off is, is, is also a way of seeing, right? I think it's helped really show that all of those circumstances are still the case when the student is at school too. It's not like other responsibilities they have at home somehow go away because they're in the school building. They're not engaging with, engaging with them in that moment, but they're still on their mind, right? So that's, I think there's been quite a bit of learning from this and it's in some sense, we shouldn't have had to learn that way. We should have known that already as educators, but I think it's just easy to see what goes on in the walls of your building and have that be it. So that, that was a big learning as well, you know, for talking about these issues of access and inclusion. I wonder if it changes for you, John, how you see community and relationships functioning in the context you work in. I think so. I, mean, I think the role of the families is really key. I think, again, it's, we know that and we talk about it. I know that it's been fully realized in all of our work in the Bartoli Colleges and also including all of the families, like his family inclusion for high school age students can really vary. This is also true in the work I'm transitioning to at Bard College at Simons Rock, which is residential. So again, it's even easier for us to think, well, once everyone's there, everything is equal, but you're certainly engaging with families in different ways, depending on, on the situation. And, and I think that that really goes towards thinking of who's in the school community. I think that this helps us really think about all the work we need to do to make families truly part of the school community, all families in every way. What lenses do you get into the school community in these work that you do training the teachers and creating the materials for them and showing them how to use it? How much of their school community do you get to glimpse through that work? Again, it depends. You know, in some of the workshops that we've done in the past couple of years, the students in the workshops have been either current masters in the art of teaching students or recent graduates of that same BARD program. And that's a program that I teach in and I do field supervision for. So oftentimes some of the workshop participants are teachers whose classrooms I've spent a lot of time in and I, I have a really strong sense of what their classroom culture is or what their school culture is. On the other hand, there's always a good handful of people in every workshop where I don't know anything about their school. Um, so it's a really interesting balance where you get to learn quite a bit about how schools differ, sometimes really, really intensely from location to location. Like there, we've had a number of colleagues join from a school district not too far from Bard in upstate New York that the Institute for Writing and Thinking had a multi-year partnership with. So that's a school that I know really, really well. And I can think about that school and their challenges as I'm beginning to develop these lesson plans, because it's also a place where the students represent a really broad range of different kinds of learners. So I can keep that in mind as I'm planning, but then on the flip side, you know, last, last summer in this workshop, we had a number of people from a high school in Israel. And, you know, that's a completely different context that if they teach American history, they teach it in a way that's quite different from how Americans would teach it. 
So it's a really, it's a tricky question, but it's kind of a fascinating question because it goes back to the idea that I think is really the theme of what we're talking about, which is how important legal history is on a large level, regardless of who you're teaching, because of the kind of access to knowledge and to ideas that impact our daily lives today. Like that's, that's all intertwined in the teaching of these kinds of materials. It's interesting to think about the international perspective on this and what that's like to look at US court cases from an international perspective. In terms of even thinking about working in multiple states, because the Bard Early Colleges has colleges have campuses in, in multiple states. We've, we've talked about how actually these New York court cases often become key court cases for the United States. Well, not the only source, that it's just a very common one. And it's interesting to look at how many landmark court decisions trace back to some type of New York court case. So that's something we've always also really worked on trying to show in our courses to have you know, students see the role of the state, the role of federal government, again, helping to further understand these different ways in which our country is set up, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in the international context. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that and that work within teachers in other countries. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because just as the level of exposure to the primary documents varies within the U.S., it varies even more broadly if you're looking at an international group of faculty. Um, and then when you get international and American teachers in one room, the conversations are fascinating because it then raises questions around, well, what kind of legal history are you taught in the place that you're from? And, you know, like what, what has been left out there just, just as we're pointing to the gaps in curricula here. It's always very interesting to look at another country's curriculum on U.S. history. There's mm -hmm. often some things that have been very much excluded often in the U.S. version of its own story are actually not unusual in that context or something that's been standardly taught. I do remember when I was in college, my roommate was from Japan and that the movie JFK came out and he was wondering why we all thought this was so interesting and new because he had been taught that version of American history mm -hmm. when he was a student in Japan. So there, there are these in, in, certainly interesting um, erasures in all, in all aspects in terms of curriculum, what gets emphasized and what, what doesn't. Something that I've been thinking about in terms of the community piece is it's the community of the people in the room in a training or in a class. And in our Harlem Law program, while many students came from the same school or school network, some students came from other schools. So the community was really formed and was, was unique in that space. You know, and, and I would think when you're working uh, with teachers, sometimes you are just working with teachers from one school and sometimes you've got a number of schools in one room. And so that community that they're in is only gonna exist for the purpose of the training and then it's gonna move outward. I mean, how do you think that affects this work? Well, I think that in, in the best case scenario, and I think that we saw this in most of the workshops that we did, faculty are really excited by the common experience they have with these other teachers who are new to them and then bring that excitement home. So they're then able to take on, you know, almost like an ambassador or leadership role as far as advocating for content to be taught using a very specific kind of pedagogy. And then I think that for faculty who attend the workshop from the same school, it opens up ways that they can collaborate either, you know, within the same grade level or across grade levels because they, 
suddenly, you know, in the average school day, a lot of faculty don't have time to talk to their colleagues. They don't really work together all that much. But the, the nature of a professional development day is such that faculty have the luxury of the time to talk to each other and to really say, oh, wow, you're teaching, you know, the different branches of government. I do something that builds on that. Maybe we can figure out a way to make our classes connect so that students are experiencing an arc of knowledge that builds from year to year. Yeah, I think about in the first of the two courses we've done in this program, it culminated in student presentations and you had students from multiple schools creating a presentation together. And that was kind of a great collaboration and for them to interact with students outside of their school, often you just don't get that opportunity. So I was excited the way their common interest in this course material really brought them together. I, I think was a really valuable piece for them to explore this topic as this small community of the students within the class, I think was also a, a key point and why it was exciting to bring together students from different places. That's not something we had done before. In most of our collaborations we are with the society, we had focused on one specific school. So the students were already went to the same school, but this was an, in, an inter-school approach that we did for the first time. And it seems like that kind of approach would really lend itself to opening up the audience even more broadly. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about ways to connect to other institutions in the larger BARD network. And one thing that keeps coming up is the idea of collaboration by way of student presentations. And I wonder if you did anything with the student presentations yet where it they were presenting to a larger audience of their peers, or if you're thinking about something like that in the future. I did think about it. It was, it was to be honest, one of those cases where after the students did their presentation, I thought, well, that would have been great for me to videotape. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And there are certainly a lot of issues with that as well, because I mean, the students certainly may, may not prefer that situation. They have the rights to their own, their own presentation, and you know, they certainly don't want to violate anyone's rights <laughs> or use their material in ways beyond what they would have wanted. But it was really wonderful. Or if they were doing this, you know, if you were doing this class in one place and having another group in another place, perhaps they could share with each other again. So it's more of a closed yeah. sharing situation, right? But I did think, oh, I kind of wish I could have seen this again now. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had the record of it. They do have the, you know, the slide deck of what they prepared, but that's not quite the same as watching you know, the whole presentation. But it did occur to me, oh, I, I wish I had been able to ask them if they wanted that and then had, had mm -hmm. recorded it. But you know, it's always something for the future. And the fact that students did a presentation when it was done, I wished I had it on record certainly is great. And you know, that, yeah. that they, they had achieved a, that level. That's extraordinary. And I also imagine that you just have a lot more questions that you have to constantly keep in mind because the students that you're working with are younger. Today, I'm finding myself thinking about teachers, but also thinking about my undergraduates. So, you know, if I need permissions for my undergraduates, I get it from them. I don't have to deal with their families. So I would just imagine that, that there's a lot of complexity there too. Yeah, and we definitely you know, had the family involvement again is a huge piece. I know that Lagaya was on the phone and other communication means with parents all the time and they're talking to family members and figuring out how to, to keep everything going. But yeah, we also have to think about, um, and this may be true for students of any age, but how the presentation is within context. Yeah. Sometimes I watch something that my students present and maybe to somebody else it isn't as great as I think it is, but I know where the starting point was and I know that they entered in 
not knowing anything about this material and really excited to learn it. And this is where we are right now. And that's really strong. I think that because I love watching young people find their voice and create this work and share their work and share their ideas, I am seeing it in this fuller context. I think it's, it's obvious to everybody, um, but you know, maybe, that's, maybe that's not always the case, but I certainly don't wanna put the students in a space where they will be unsafe in terms of their ideas not being respected and valued in the way that they definitely should be. Yeah, absolutely. And John, that reminds me of another question that I wanted to ask you that I'm just curious about, which is, have you, once we, we had to move to online learning, did you notice that you had to do any extra work to sort of shape the way that conversations were happening online or to create a community online that maybe had different rules or different ways of, of working from what you were doing in person? You know, in that one, I wish that I had more of a lens in which to answer. I'm in most semesters I'm teaching. This is one of, I think, the second semester within 20 years that I didn't have my own class. And I truly felt a little bit sad that I didn't have a class to get to learn to do the, the online teaching with as everyone went to remote because I've always liked to use my own teaching as a way to help my faculty think through issues and to compare my own experience. So I you know, may get to do that in the fall but it's not something that I really got to do. So I wish I had more of an answer and I truly do. And this, I think this isn't just me saying, oh, that would have been a great experience and how nice that I didn't have to have it. Like I really, I think that would have been such an amazing challenge to truly try to work through. How did that, how was that for you? It was really hard. And it was interesting because I, I'm thinking now about the fall and, and the myriad forms that instruction might take in the fall. And the fact that in the spring when we moved remote, I already had a relationship with my students and I knew them and we knew each other and we had a way of working together before we needed to move online. And it was still really hard to figure out how to work together online. Like it seemed as though there were different rules about how to have a conversation and how to make sure that we were hearing each other in meaningfully respectful ways that were just fundamentally different from the way things would work in person. And, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about the next thing. So I'm also imagining like, what is this going to be like in the fall when I don't know the students? And, you know, what if we need to start online? You know, that kind of thing. It was hard and I don't think it ever stopped being really hard because I think that the other thing is that everybody in the class was in a different, really hard situation. And, you know, none of us really knew what was going on for the others. And so I think that that posed its own challenges, but it really made me think a lot about how important it is to intentionally sort of set up structures to hold the way that one works together with a class. Like, you know, how do we talk to each other? What do we need out of a discussion in order to participate? What assumptions do we need to be very careful that we don't bring? And it does make me see that these are really issues for us to figure out because in terms of you know, access to this material that we've been talking about, as something that is so not structurally in the place of most curricula, that mm -hmm. if there were ways to have this material from the Historical Society of the New York Courts available to students, not just all over New York State, but beyond, you know, through online modules or other approaches, just think of how many more people we could reach. I know that you and I both love doing in-person trainings. And that's you know, something that we, we really bond over. 
I, I am sort of grappling with the reality of if there were ways for me to do that differently, there could be more people to connect with. And so it is, it is a bit of a mindset, mindset shift because I still love being in a room of teachers I've not met before and doing this in-person training and watching them write and watch, you know, watching them do their things and, and really watching people think in that circle, especially when they're not speaking, when it's not that, you know, when they're not expressing something. But I think it is a little bit about kind of becoming more comfortable with that as an idea, because I do think that if, if we're really looking at access, inclusion, and community, what are ways that we can stretch as educators to reach more people? Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm thinking about the same thing. And, you know, John, maybe one way to sort of wind down our conversation would be to not to put us on the spot, but to just very quickly kind of think about whether or not we could just brainstorm a couple of pedagogical strategies that work remotely that could help to immerse or engage students in conversations around texts like the ones that we work with through the historical society. It occurs to me that that specificity is really key. It does seem that when you're online, you have to ask questions that are more specific. But because we do work that really connects to specific texts and specific lines of text, you know, here's the idea we're discussing. Where are the words where you most see that? Mm -hmm. right? People could post those in the chat, right? or you could look at that in a shared document. I know that um, sometimes we've done exercises where people write in each other's notebooks, and that you know, some students, it's awkward to have someone else write in their notebook. That shared document can enable us to have something that's kind of the notebook for the group. So some of those kinds of practices that, that we focused on, I think we could do in these online settings. And then when it's done, you know, whenever we do some type of group creation, I sometimes think, well, how am I going to keep that? Well, it's actually quite easy to keep in the technological sense. So then I, I would be able to keep it every time we did that. Or if you had multiple groups do the same conversation, you could compare it, even show them to each other. So it's like once they start to break through the idea that this is different, a lot of the same things are familiar. What are some things that come to mind for you in terms of some strategies we could, we could use? Well, John, I think that we're thinking very much along the same lines where the two things that pop into my head are the practice of annotation and how it's really easy and pretty fun to do that online. So, for example, you know, there are all kinds of different apps and plugins that you can use to look at a text that exists in the public domain and actually unpack the words in the text and look carefully at them and ask questions of other people to help you come to an understanding of them. The other thing that I was thinking about is, you know, the importance of asking questions and how um, encouraging students to just ask questions continually is a practice that in my experience has worked really well online to the extent that I think that a lot of students who in person tend to be very shy and maybe don't speak, I've noticed are more likely to ask a question in a discussion forum or in the Zoom chat box, whereas they might keep that question to themselves in an in-person class. So that's, you know, that's another strategy and I'm not sure how I would frame that, I think it would depend on the students that I was working with, but just really encouraging students to understand that there's no such thing as a bad question and that the more questions we can ask, particularly of a challenging text, the better. Well, and I think it's interesting to think about how the use of online writing and social media has actually increased writing in many ways. 
I think about when I was in high school, you'll have no written record of anything I ever said to my friends because we were on the phone all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So students writing a response to something electronically is not actually an unusual act. To have them see how that can connect to material you're working on in the classroom, maybe there's some steps there in some of those linkages, but I think that it, you know, it really helps with, in some ways, what I sometimes think of in, in the Bardoli Colleges and at Simons Rock, that students are having these very intellectual gossip about topics. And so in a sense, to have students having you know, intellectual gossip about illegal text, right? And mm -hmm. if, they, if they were texting each other that, you know, that would be kind of a wonderful world. So if this is helping us bridge to that, I think there's something really exciting about it. I agree. I love that idea of having intellectual gossip around legal texts. Well, maybe since what we're having, and I do think I once had a student who referred to intellectual gossip, so I should cite the source um, to a graduation speech. But since, since uh, maybe that's a point for us to conclude what for us was a session of some intellectual gossip, shall we say? <laughs> I think it's been really fun getting to talk to you, Erica. I know that we, I've been hearing about the work you do at the courts, but you know, to, to get to really sit down and talk about it was a super exciting way to spend part of the day. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much, John. I always enjoy hearing about the work that you're up to across the many different campuses of the Bard Early Colleges and the many different students that you work with there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast. Learn more about our educational programs, find lesson plans, and other curricular material, and see how the society can work with your class or school on the Teach and Learn section of our website at history.nycourts.gov. That's history.nycourts.gov.